Good evening, welcome back. Tonight's class is graciously dedicated by David and Ida Schattenstein in the loving and sacred memory of Rabbi Gavriel Noyach and Rifki Holzberg, as well as the other Kedoshim massacred in Mumbai in India. This evening we are going to explore an enigmatic medrash related to the holiday we are presently approaching the festival of Sukkot. The medrash is based on one of the psukim, one of the biblical verses in Vayikra, in the portion of Emmer in the book of Leviticus, dealing with Sukkot. Open up your sources to source number one. Below the video in your curriculum you have source number one. Let us see the Pasuk. The Torah states in Parshas Emer, Perik Chav Gimel, Pasuk Mem 2340. On the first day, you shall take for yourself the four famous species, the Dalad Minim, the Esrig, the Lulav, the Hadas, the Arava, the Citron, the branch of the palm tree, the myrtle branch, and the willow. And rejoice in the presence of God for seven days. Comes the Medrash, the Medrash Rabbah, on that verse in Parshas Emer. Medrash Rabbah Vayikra, Parsha Lamed, Pisca Zion, opened up source number two. The same theme is also found in Medrash Tanchuma. It's quoted in other sources. And let's see what the Medrash says. The Medrash asks a question. When the Torah says you should take on the first day these four species, the Lulav, the Esrug, the Hadas, and Arava, the Torah is referring to the 15th day of Tishrei, which is the first day of the holiday of Sukkot the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei. So why does the Torah call it by Yom HaRisha in the first day when it's really the 15th day? Two great sages, Rebona and Rabbi Yeshua, in the name of Rebbe explained it with the following metaphor. Listen to the metaphor. There was a country in debt of lots of taxes to the king, and they weren't paying it. So the king felt that this was a rebellion. So as the Midrash Tanchuma here elaborates with some more details, the king calls his troops and said, it's time to go attack the country and get what is ours, this these people believe that they are independent. They don't owe any allegiance to their monarch. Let us go and collect the money. Within 10 million, a mill is approximately a kilometer. So within 10 kilometers of the actual city, as the king was arriving the great dignitaries of the country came out and praised the king. They demonstrated their loyalty, their subservience, their relationship to the king. 
the king forgave them for a third of the taxes which they owned him, which they owed him. As the Midrash Tanchum explains, they told the king, we don't have. The reason we didn't pay was not because we didn't want to pay or we didn't feel we have to pay. We simply don't have. We're broke. Perhaps a recession was going on then as well. We're broke. We don't have the money. So don't take it as a rebellion. It's simply the fact that we, we, don't, we lack the flow. We lack the finances. So the king forgave them a third of the debt. Within the next five kilometers, within five kilometers of the country, the intermediary citizens of the country came out and extolled his virtues. They praised him. And the king forgave them a second third of the debt. Once he arrived into the country, the entire country, everybody, men, women and children, all came out to greet him and praise him and the king forgave them the entire debt. The king told them, What was, was, and now we begin a new calculation. This is the metaphor that Midrashic sages are presenting to us so that we can understand the verse concerning Sukkot and the four species. So the country who owns a major debt to the king, to the government, first the king sees them as rebels and is determined by hook or by crook to get his money from them. He forgives them one third, then he forgives them a second third, and then he forgives them the rest of the debt and says, you know what, what was, was, let us begin fresh. Kach, the second paragraph in source number two from the Medrash, Kach, Be'edev Rosh Hashanah, G'doyli Adoy Misanen V'Kadosh Baruch Hu Matir Lehem Shlishma V'Nisayen. On the day before Rosh Hashanah, the great giants of the generation fast. And God forgives the Jewish people a third of their transgressions. During the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, individual Jews fast, and God forgives the Jews a second third of their sins. On Yom Kippur, all of the Jewish people fast. Men, women, youngsters. And God forgives the Jewish people all of their sins and He tells them what was, was. And now let us begin a new cheshben, a new calculation of your behavior. So just as in the metaphor, three groups of people approach the king. The same is in our case, Erev Rosh Hashanah, one group, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, a second group, and finally when the king enters into the land, the entire nation comes out to greet him, and he forgives them for everything. That's Yom Kippur, and he says, let us begin anew. Now during the days from Yom Kippur till Sukkot, you have four days, all of the Jewish people are consumed in performance of mitzvahs. This Jew is busy building a sukkah. This Jew is busy buying a lulav. 
On the first day of Sukkot, the Jewish people stand with their lulavim, with their palm branches, with their estrogen, with their citrons to honor God. And he tells them, what was, was. From now, let us begin a new calculation. Therefore, Moshe warns. He cautions the Jewish people and he calls the first day of Sukkot. Not the 15th day of Tishrei, but the first day. So the Medrash asked, it's not the first day of a month, it's the 15th day of the month. Why does Moshe Rabbeinu call it the first day as though it was the first day of the month when really it's the mid of the month, it's the center of the month, it's the 15th day of the month? And the answer is because Moshe is cautioning the Jews. There is a fresh start. This is the first day. It's not the first day in the context of the calendar or of the month. It's the 15th day of the month. It's not Rosh Hashanah. It's not the beginning of the year, the beginning of the month. But it's the first day in the context of your moral accountability. That from today begins a new calculation of sins. Because Yom Kippur, the old debt was atoned. From the days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, nobody has time to sin. They're busy with mitzvahs. The first day of Sukkot, the 15th day of the month, now starts a new calculation of sins. Hence he calls it by Yom Arisha in the first day. This is the Midrashic commentary on this verse concerning Sukkot. At first glance, this is a very strange Midrash. How do we understand this? The four days before Sukkot, when you're running around to build your Sukkah, when you're running around to buy your Lulav and Esrik, when you're running around preparing for the holiday, there are no sins, the Medrash says. When do we say you start sinning? When is the Rishon L'Chash Ben When the holiday comes, before the Yom Tov, when you're preparing for it, now you're pure, now you're clean, now nobody sins. Now when the actual Yom Tov begins, and Jews are doing the mitzvah, they're not preparing for the mitzvah, they're sitting in the sukkah, they're shaking the lulav and esrik, suddenly here, now they begin to sin. What happens if on the first day of sukkah they don't sin, and there's no chesh ben avaynais? It's as though, and this is what's so strange, Moshe Rabbeinu is promising them, this is the first day when your sins are being calculated, because you're going to sin now, why would we assume? That on the first day of the holiday, that's when every Jew or some Jews are going to begin to sin, God forbid. And if they're going to begin sinning on Sukkot, they'll certainly begin a few days earlier. And many commentators throughout the generation struggled to understand what is the true meaning and the symbolism here in this Midrash. That precisely the first day of Yom Tov of Sukkot should be defined by Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah. As Yerisha in the first day, for what? It's a fresh start. A fresh start for what? That there's a new calculation of sins. And we will not say to push it off till after Yom Tov, Till after the holidays. I want to share with you a beautiful explanation presented by the great Hasidic master, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. He writes this in his book, Sefer Kedushas Levi, on the portion of Ha'azinu. And in order to understand his explanation, let us preface the fact that it's been seen 
and understood by many of the Jewish thinkers and masters that Sukkot is actually a continuation of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In other words, Yom Kippur and Sukkot are not two separate experiences. They're actually interconnected deeply with each other. One represents the same concept on a level of awe, and the other reflects the same concept, but from a point of view of love and celebration. As many sources explain, Yom Kippur, we know, is the day of tshuva, of repentance, of forgiveness. It's the day that Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Jewish people the second set of tablets. It's the day Hashem told them, Salachti Kidvarecha, I have atoned completely the Jews for their betrayal of the creation of, uh, for their betrayal and the creation of the golden calf and he gives them the second tablets the second luchas after the first ones were broken and thus it becomes the great day of tshuva the great day of repentance sukkus is the joy and the celebration commemorating and celebrating that reconciliation that renewed and invigorated and rejuvenated relationship between the Jewish people and God is one of the great celebrations of Sukkot. In fact, many Svarim write in many sources that the schach of the Sukkot is symbolically created from the Anan Hakteris, from the cloud which came up on Yom Kippur from the burning of the incense of the high priest in the Holy of Holies as the smoke went up. Symbolically, that smoke hovering over the sanctuary and the temple, that becomes manifested in a very physical and concrete way in the schach, which hovers over our sukkahs. In fact, the reason we celebrate sukkahs, the Pasuk says in Parshas Emmer, You should know that when the Jews, you should remember that when I took the Jews out of Egypt, I placed them in sukkahs. The Talmud in Masech the Sukkot, the Gemara in Sukkot, Afyud Aleph, page 11, discusses the argument between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva. What type of Sukkot was it literally huts that the Jewish people dwelt in when they left Egypt during their journey in the desert, according to Rabbi Eliezer, according to Rabbi Akiva, was Anani HaKavod, the clouds of glory, the clouds of glory which enveloped the Jewish people and protected them from the sun and from a heat wave during their long journey and voyage in the desert. And it's those clouds of glory that we commemorate when we sit in our sukkah. So our sukkah is metaphoric and symbolic of the clouds of glory, connected also to the cloud that ascended, the cloud of smoke that ascended from Aaron, from the high priest's burning of the incense on Yom Kippur. Now this concept of the connection between Yom Kippur and Sukkot is also true in a very uh, vivid way when you study the famous question why Sukkot is celebrated on the 15th day of the month of Tishrei. If it commemorates the journey of the Jewish people out of Egypt through the desert protected by Sukkot, whether physical huts, Sukkot means a hut, or supernal clouds of glory, a divine hut, so to speak, we should celebrate it after Passover, after Pesach. This is the famous question of the tour in Erechayim and Hilchas Sukkah. Why do we celebrate Sukkot during the fifteenth month of the fifteenth day of Tishrei? If it commemorates the Exodus of Egypt, it should be done when they left Egypt, which was on the fifteenth day of Nisan. 
So I guess we should, have, we should build a sukkah and eat matzah. And everything else we do, have the seder in a sukkah. Why is sukkah suddenly the 15th of Tishrei? There are many answers given for this. There's one famous answer given by the Vilna Gaon. The Vilna Gaon says this in his commentary to Shir Hashirim, to the Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 3. And he says, it's a fascinating explanation, that we know that when the Jewish people created and erected the golden calf, Merely 40 days after the revelation at Sinai, they created a pagan idol which many worshipped. The clouds of glory which protected them and engulfed them parted, left. That is the meaning the Medrash says in the Pasuk, it says in Parshas Kisisa, Vayar Moshe Sa'amki Paruahu. Moshe, Moses saw the nation that it was exposed, it was open. What does it mean it was exposed? It was exposed because it didn't have the divine protection of the clouds of glory. Now, when did God forgive the Jewish people for the creation of the golden calf? We said a moment ago that was on Yom Kippur. On the day of Yom Kippur, the 10th of Tishrei, God told Moshe, Salachti Kidvarecha, I have completely forgiven the Jewish people, which is why Yom Kippur has been established in the Jewish calendar as the ultimate day of return, of healing, of recovery, of reconciliation, of peace, of removing the stains, the dirt, the filth in our own moral, psychological, spiritual, and emotional identity. It's the day he gave them the second, he gave Moshe the second tablets. So Moshe comes down from the mountain. The next morning, we know the 11th of Tishrei, the morning after Yom Kippur. Vayakal Moshe, Moshe gathers the Jews. And he instructs them, as Rashi tells us in the beginning of Ayakel and in other places that Midrashim say, the day after Yom Kippur, the morning after Yom Kippur, Yud Al of Tishrei, in the morning, Moshe gathered the entire nation. And he instructed them to build the Mishkan, to build a sanctuary. In the words of Parshastroma, make from me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them to bring back, so to speak, the divine presence into the world after the sin of the golden calf, expelled, so to speak, the manifestation of the divine presence of God's presence. Moshe told the Jews to start contributing gold, silver, copper, wool, and other materials, 13 materials which were needed for the construction of the sanctuary to house the divine presence in the desert. What happens next? Take a look in source number 3, the Pasuk describes in Parshas Vayaka Lamed Vav Gimel that the builders, the architects of the Mishkan, headed by a man named Betzalel, great craftsmen, took all of the material that the Jewish people brought, source number three, they took all of the contributions that the Jewish people brought, but the Jews continued to contribute in the morning, in the morning. So our sages tell us in the Midrash that in two mornings, the Jews completed contributing all of the merchandise and materials necessary for the construction of the sanctuary. And what happens afterwards? The architects, the designers of the Mishkan make a count and they tell Moshe, it's enough! And he says, make an announcement to the people to stop ringing. So now let's make the calculation, the Vilna Gaon says. Moshe Rabbeinu announced on the 11th of Tishrei, time to build a Mishkan. 
the Jews contribute everything during two mornings. So which two mornings is it? The first morning is the 12th of Tishrei. The second morning is the 13th of Tishrei. So by the morning of the 13th of Tishrei, they bring a major amount of material. And now the planners begin, the architects, the designers take account... And they announce on the next day, the 14th day of Tishrei, they announce to the Jewish community, enough! Stop! It was the only time in Jewish history, I believe, appeal was made, and then it was stopped. They wanted to give more, and they said, no, we don't need more. I never heard of an institution or an organization since that should tell donors, stop, I have enough, don't give me any more. But every penny was accounted for. So the 13th they give, the 12th they give, the 13th they give, the 14th of Tishrei they announce, stop. Now they have all the material they can begin building. When do they actually, when can they begin? 14 at night, 15th in the morning. It is the holiday of Sukkot, but they can plan the building, they can start things that are permitted. But now they can actually get to work. And what happens? The clouds of glory come back. They left with the sin of the creation of the golden calf. Now they finally come back. Since they come back at the end of the 14th day, the beginning of the 15th day of Tishrei, that's when we celebrate Sukkot to commemorate those clouds of glory. So in summation, the holiday of Sukkot is a continuation. It's a continuum of the holiday, the experience of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Or as the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi discusses in Lekutei Torah <coughs> many times, the verse in Shir Hashidim which reads, Smoiloi tachas l'roshi the bride says, his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. And he says, his left arm is under my head, refers to the days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the days of awe, the days of judgment, the days of tshuva. His right arm embraces me. This refers to the holiday of Sukkot. So it's one continuation. Sukkot, we celebrate the tshuva, the return, the wholesomeness, the reconciliation of Rosh Hashanah and especially Yom Kippur. In fact, the Alter Rebbe takes it a step further and quotes the teachings of the Arizal and Priyat Chaim. You know, halachically, to have a sukkah, you need two walls and a little bit of a third wall. As the Gemara says, afilu tefach. You need two complete walls and a handbreadth of a third wall. It has to be stationed in a particular way, as the Shulchan Aruch discusses in Simon Tafresh Lamed and Hilchah Sukkah. But the point is two walls and another little part of a third wall. That's the minimum requirement to have a kosher sukkah in which you can eat and drink and enjoy yourself during sukkahs. So the Priyat Chaim that Rizal explains, quoted in the Torah by the, by the Alter Rebbe, says like this, take the right arm. How many sections does the right arm have? So you have one section is from the shoulder, from the shoulder till the elbow, section number one. Section number two is from the elbow till the fist. And then you have the third little section, the actual palm of the hand. So what is sukkas? What is a sukkah? God's right arm embraces us. So one complete wall represented in the first section of the right arm, the second wall represented in the, third, in the second section, and the little part of a third wall, hashlishes afilu tefach, represented in the palm. So that's the embrace of love represented in the sukkah. 
If this is the case, we can describe the difference between Yom Kippur and Sukkot essentially in this way. Yom Kippur represents Tshuva Meira. Tshuva, repentance, return with a sense of awe. Sukkot represents Tshuva Me'ava, returning with a sense and experience of love. Now open up your curriculum to source number four. Source number four, we learn a fascinating Gemara, a piece of the Talmud tractate Yumadav Pevavamad Beis, page 86b. Says the Gemara, Omar Reshlakish, Reshlakish says, source number four in your curriculum right below the video. Gdoyla Tshuva, Tshuva is great. Sins which you have committed willingly are transformed into inadvertent mistakes. The verse says in Isaiah, Return Israel to God, because you have stumbled on your sins. Avaynecha is a sin which a person does willingly, intentionally. And yet the Torah calls it a stumbling. It was a stumble, it was a mistake, it was an error. Because this is what Shuvah accomplishes. What Shuvah does is when I do Shuvah, it redefines my previous malicious act as though it was a mistake, it was an error. I didn't do it with my full consciousness. I didn't do it with my full intent. If I would have known what I know now, I would have never done it. So essentially, it was a mistake. That's what Shuva does. Zag the Gemara, the second paragraph. Aini, this is not the case. The same Rish Lakish once stated. Shuva is awesome because what does Shuva accomplish? That your intentional sins are transformed into merits, into virtues. When the wicked person returns from his negative behavior and does righteousness, just justice and righteousness, he will live through them. In other words, the very transgressions become a source of life. The very averis, the very violations and sins are transformed into merits, into zachias, into virtues. So the Gemara, the Talmud cites here a contradiction. In one place, Rish Lakish said, what does tshuva accomplish? That your intentional sins become mistakes. In a second place, Rish Lakish tells us that your intentional sins actually become mitzvahs. They are deemed as meritorious actions. The Gemara answers like Kasha. It's not a question. Kan me'ava, kan me'ira. It depends whether you return to God with love or you return to God because of your awe, your sense of fear. When a person does tshuva with a sense of awe, dread, and this doesn't necessarily mean fear of punishment or a type of guilt. We're talking about awe from in the presence of, of truth, or in the presence of reality, or in the presence of God. That is what compels the tshuva. Then... Your sins are defined as mistakes, as errors. You made a mistake. I can forgive you for a mistake. It's hard to forgive somebody for a malicious, destructive act. But for a mistake, it's a mistake. You didn't realize. 
I can forgive you. It's easier to forgive. But if you do tshuva out of love, me'ava, then it's not only that your negative acts are seen retrospectively as mistakes, your negative acts are seen as mitzvahs, as good deeds, as though you did a mitzvah. There's a story they tell also about the Holy Rebbe Yitzchak of Bardichev. He had a custom to extol the virtues of people he met. And he would always find a positive component in people's behavior. Even where other people couldn't easily find a positive spin. He somehow had a positive angle. Find a redeeming factor in every person and in every person's behavior. So they tell the story that once he was walking to the synagogue on Yom Kippur. The story has a few versions, but the point is the same in all of them. And here is one of the versions. He was walking to the synagogue on Yom Kippur and he saw a famous Jewish rebel eating in public on Yom Kippur. Shabbat Yitzchak of Bardichev sees this Jew. The Jew looks at him and says, Rabbi, what good can you find in what I'm doing? You, the great master of goodness who always knows how to uncover the redeeming factor. What type of redeeming factor can you find in this? I'm eating on Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Yitzchak Bardichev tells him, you know, I'm actually very jealous of you. I'm envious of you. Man. Says, of course you're envious. You must be hungry. He says, no, that's not why I'm jealous of you. I'm envious for another reason. The Talmud says in Shraktit Yuma, which we just learned, page 86, that if you do tshuva out of love, all of your sins will be transformed into mitzvahs. Oigevald, how many mitzvahs you can have. With the amount of sins you commit, I only think of how many mitzvahs you can have and I envy you. The man who was a real cynic looks at him and says, Rebbe, come back next to Yom Kippur and you will become even more envious of me. <laughs> because the amount of sins he'll commit throughout the year, he'll have the potential of having many more mitzvahs. That's one half of the story. But the second half of the story is that ultimately the man did shuvah. Ultimately the man did repent. The words and the approach of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Bartichev actually affected him very deeply. So this is the uniqueness of tshuva out of love. When you do tshuva out of love, what happens is, every previous error, and every previous misdeed, and violation, and transgression, and sin, become now fuel, which give a new vitality, a new passion, to the Jew who embraced the truth. Somebody who has failed and failed miserably, when they return, when they heal, when they experience recovery, their new relationship has a depth to it, and a vitality to it, and a gusto to it, an oomph, which is fueled precisely from the mistakes and from the transgressions. As we discussed at length in the previous Yom Kippur lecture, the power of real tshuva to redefine the past, so that every error and every sin is seen as a springboard and as a catalyst for your relationship to God and therefore every sin becomes actually a mitzvah. You know why it's seen as a mitzvah? Because in retrospect it brought you closer to God. It helped you learn something that you could have never learned otherwise. And it gave your relationship a certain integrity 
and depth and honesty and yearning and thirst and passion that you could have never had without those sins precisely. And therefore, the Talmud says, Rishlakr says, Tshuva out of love, a love that's fueled by the very mistakes, a passion that is energized by the very failures of the person. That very failure then is not a sin, it's a mitzvah. Why is it a mitzvah? Then it was a sin, but now it becomes a mitzvah through tshuva. Why? Because in retrospect, it brought you much closer to yourself, to your soul, to God. You know the story, the metaphor, the Dubner Magid once gave. It's a lovely metaphor. There was a king who had a beautiful diamond. Extremely majestic and royal, glittering diamond, very expensive. And a child took the diamond once and threw it on the floor and it got a scratch. The king took a look, his most precious diamond now had a scratch in a very visible place and it ruined the whole look. He was extremely upset. And he brought in all the connoisseurs, all the experts to try to fix it. But nobody can do anything. It was in a very sensitive place, and if they would try to play with it, they would only damage it. The king searched and searched for an expert, and then one day, a simple Jew, Ayidala, who dealt with diamonds, arrives. And he comes to the king, he can fix it. Are you sure? Yes, he can fix it. What did he do, the Dubna Magad said? The Dubna Magad was a famous Jewish preacher in Poland. His name was Yaakov Kranz. He took the diamond and he built out of it, he sculptured out of it a beautiful flower. And he used a scratch as, a, as the stem of the flower. So now there was a gorgeous flower which came out of the diamond and it had a stem and that was the old scratch. That's tshuva. Real tshuva doesn't only mean I escape from my past. I flee from my experiences. I run as fast as I can from what I have done. Real tshuva is the courage and the power to look back and to take the scratches of my life and turn them into a stem, a foundation for a flower. Comes the Helika Badichever and says, Now we will understand the Medrash. Now let us go back to the Medrash in source number two, the long Medrash I explained. Why is it called Bayoimarisha? And what did the Medrash say? It's the first day when we begin calculating sins. So the Baditshava says in Ketushas Levi, we have to understand the Medrash in a new, much deeper, much richer way. Namely, comes Rosh Hashanah. Before Rosh Hashanah, some Jews fast. God forgives a third of the sins. Between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, God forgives a second third. 
Comes Yom Kippur, every Jew approaches the king. Every Jew speaks to God. Men, women, children, everybody in their own words, their own language, their own heart, their own soul, screams out, Avinu Malkeinu! Reaches out to our Creator, to Almighty, to our Father in Heaven. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echad. And all of the sins are forgiven, and the king says, Now is a new calculation. So the Midrash says, for four days people are busy, no time to sin. Come Sukkot, oh, now you begin sinning, let's start a new calculation. So we ask the question, what, everybody sits down on the Sukkot, they're going to gossip? You're certain they're all going to sin? Comes the Badichim and the Blevitzim, Badichim and says, no, what the Midrash means is something else. Rosh Hashanah and Yim Kippur, we do tshuva, but it's tshuva miyira. Primarily the tshuva of Yom Kippur is a tshuva which has within it the element of awe, of yira. And therefore we're forgiven for the sins. The sins are transformed into mistakes, into errors. Even those sins which we did with full consciousness and intent. And we're forgiven for our mistakes. We apologize and we're forgiven. And the sins are cast away. Come sukkahs. Sukkot is a time of celebration. Sukkot is a time of joy. Sukkot is a time of tremendous love and affection and passion. The walls of the sukkah embrace the Jew with tremendous love and they arouse within the Jew a sense of love and a whole new closeness with Hashem, with God. Ah, then the sins are not cast away into mistakes and forgiven. Every sin becomes a mitzvah. Comes Moshe to the Jews and says, Now let's calculate all your sins. Now bring back all the sins and let us make a calculation of every single sin because every sin is redefined as a mitzvah. This is then the deeper meaning in the words of the Madrash. When the king tells the people and says, what was, was. And now we begin a new calculation. Now we begin a calculation. It doesn't mean only a calculation for the future. Now we begin the calculation. Now we begin the calculation. We recalculate the sins in order to transform them. And this is also the meaning in the Medrash we could say, Not only Moshe warns the Jews. Mazir also comes from the word Zohar, which means light. Moshe illuminates the Jewish people. He light creates light in their lives. And what's the light? He opens up a light and he says, You know what Sukkot is? Sukkot is not the 15th day. Sukkot is B'yayma Rishon. It's the day when we calculate sins. It's Rishon L'chesh Ben Avonis. It's the day when we start calculating not future sins from today. We go back to the old transgressions and redefine them as mitzvahs. This, the Lubavitcher Rebbe once explained, is the explanation to another fascinating contrast between the first half of Tishrei and the second half of Tishrei. You're all familiar with the great custom of Tashlich. On Rosh Hashanah, Jewish communities go out to the water. 
whether you go individually or you go in large crowds and large communities, recent years it became a popular thing even among communities who don't do many other things, but Tashlich became a big thing, a big tradition. What is Tashlich? We go to the water, we say during Tashlich. Tashlich means to cast away, to throw away, to throw away into the depths of the sea all of your sins. That's Tashlich. And the reasons that are given why we go to the water and why we go to the fish, but this is what happens in Rosh Hashanah. We go to the water and we throw away all of our sins, symbolically speaking. Now comes Sukkot. What happens on Sukkot? Everybody knows that one of the great traditions of Sukkot was known as Simchas Beis Hashayeva. The great joy of drawing the water. What used to happen in the time of the Beis HaMikdash? The Jewish people would go and in the morning of Sukkot, early in the morning, the first day of Sukkot, would go to the well, the Shiluach well in Jerusalem, and draw water. You would draw water with joy and then bring the water to the base of Mikdash. And the Kohen, the high the priest, would pour the water from a cup on, onto the Mizbech, onto the altar. It was called Nisuch Hamayim. From the water that they drew from the well, they would bring it up to the mountaintop, into the temple. And in the morning, the priest would do a special mitzvah called Nisuch Hamayim, pour from a cup of water special goblet of water onto the altar, in addition to the wine pourings, the wine libations which happened every day. This was Simchas Beis HaShayeva. So let's understand, friends. On Rosh Hashanah you went to the water. What did you do in the water? You cast away your sins into the water. So where are the sins? The sins are now in the water. What do you do, Sukkot? Sukkot, we go back to the water. And we take out the water. What are you looking for in the water? What are you looking for in the water? You're looking for your sins. You're looking for your mistakes. You're looking for your painful moments. You're looking for the very transgressions and the very challenges which you once had to cast away in order to survive. Now, Sukkot, you come back to the water and you reclaim those mistakes. You reclaim those sins. Rishon lechash ben avainos. Because each one can now become a catalyst and a springboard which only makes you a better person, a more real person, a deeper person and a more godly person. Ultimately, each of them turns out to become a link in your own journey, in your connection to God. Not a cause for alienation, but a cause for a deeper connection. They tell the story about one of the students of the Holy Reb Melech of Lezhensk, the Rebbe Rebbe Melech of Lezhensk, once went to Rosh Hashanah to Tashlich. And he went to the spring of water, and he performed the ceremony of Tashlich. And when he finished, one of his loyal chassidim, one of his loyal students, ran into the water. So his Rebbe looked at him and said, Vastusta, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, I'm going to pick up and collect the Rebbe's sins. I would like to have some of the Rebbe's sins. If they are sins of the Rebbe, of the Holy Rebbe, Lezhensk, I would like them 
I would like to claim them as my own. So this is what he already did during Tashlich. But this is the concept of Sukkot. One of the great themes of Sukkot. Indicated in these three words of the Madrash. Rishon Lechesh Ben Avainais. And this constitutes a tremendous lesson to each and every one of us. There's no person in the world who doesn't stumble. There's no person in the world who hasn't made, made mistakes. Who hasn't failed in one way or another. There are very few people who can say that they have no struggles. Emotionally, psychologically, physically, spiritually. We make mistakes. We sin. We lie to ourselves. We lie to others. We lie to God. Or at least some of us. And Sukkot is the great moment of the Yemine Techapkeni of an embrace. Where the Jew and the human being can go back and look at the very pain and the very mistake and the very error and the very sins in your life which you thought genuinely have alienated you from yourself and they have. But when we do tshuva with love, with gusto, so then what happens is we can go back, go back to the water and reclaim our mistakes and reclaim our painful moments and even reclaim our sins because each and every one of them becomes a springboard and a catalyst for a rejuvenation and for a new depth and meaning in our lives. Have a good evening and a wonderful good yamtif. Good night.